Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Promoting peace, liberty, and prosperity around the clock. LibertyTalk.fm. special guest who I'm very excited to have on. This is Professor Walter Williams. Uh, he's a professor at George Mason University, professor of economics. In this day and age and what's going on now in our, uh, our country and with our, with our economy, I actually wanted to have somebody on who understands what capitalism is, can speak to this movement of these progressives and, and so democratic socialist movement towards social justice and, uh, you know, distribution of labor, of wealth, of, I think, everything in this, in this situation. As a physician, we've been seeing and hearing things about uh, health care is a right, and it's immoral. Capitalism is immoral. And I wanted Professor Williams to come on and let us know what his thoughts are about this. Professor Williams, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's an honor to have you. And thank you for inviting me. You know, I've been reading your the, the blogs and the, your work. It's just amazing. It's fascinating because it's not coming from a position of emotion. It's coming from a position of facts. So let's jump in with the, the socialist movement that's going on in this country. Well, let's start from the beginning. What is socialism versus communism? Is there a difference? Well, uh, I, I think they're 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 approximately the same. Uh, uh, when we talk about communism or socialism, uh, we're talking about uh, government ownership and or control over the means of production. Uh, so, so you have a a country like um, like uh, the Soviet Union uh, or Russia, where there's extensive government ownership and control of the means of production. And so we surely say that's communist. But you might have a country like Sweden uh, that we say, well, gee, that's socialist, but there's, uh, there's not government ownership and control over the means of production. Uh, they, the, uh, this, what the Swedes have is uh, maybe uh, we can call it socialism in consumption, but not socialism in production. That is, they have very, very high tax rates, and they, and they give, uh, give people uh, all kinds of uh, uh, money and, 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 uh, and benefits. It, it not- I noticed from an article yesterday that even though the Swedes have the high, one of the highest tax rates, their healthcare system doesn't work very well. They still don't have access. They still are, you know, have a, a, they don't have enough labor, enough doctors and nurses to enter the system. So <laughs> there still seems to be a problem with that. Oh yes. Well, I, I think that uh, when you when you have government control over almost anything, you're going to have uh, uh, problems. Um, that is, uh, you know, healthcare services like anything else must be rationed and you know you have to decide who gets what mm-hmm. and there there are all kinds of ways of rationing uh uh, uh anything including health care you can do it through the market mechanism you can do it through prices or you can do it through people waiting in line uh, that is the the canadians uh, they have a uh, like sweden they they have a a, a single payer system and but however uh, there's a, a lot of uh, uh, queuing up uh, matter of fact if you go to Hospitals, 
uh, along the U.S. border with Canada, the hospitals give advertisements that uh, well, we'll give you an MRA, MRI in a uh, in a day or two, as opposed to having to wait several weeks. Um, in where there's socialized medicine in in London, uh, there are many cases where uh, uh, patients show up with a maybe cancer, colon cancer, and where at a time when it's treatable, and by the time they wait till they get an appointment with a specialist, uh, sometimes it's it's not treatable at all. I mean, it's just too late. And so uh, I, I think that. The, uh, when you when you start having government allocation of, of resources, you're going to run into problems. And I just might add, um, finally, you you have people from uh, Canada, uh, let's say rich people, and uh, and people and and, uh, and politicians, they come to the United States for their treatment. Uh, Johns Hopkins uh, uh, treats many Canadian patients, and uh, Cleveland, Ohio. I mean, Cleveland is known as the hip replacement center for Canadians. Isn't that interesting? So ultimately what you're saying or what I'm what I'm hearing is what I've what I've always felt from a, a gut level that when somebody tells you what your worth is, somebody allocates it and you don't have the, the right to choose yourself, it's never going to be as good as you being able to freely move and freely decide your own fate. I, I think you're right. So let's Talk about the free market because the people on the left are just up in arms about free market and equals fascism and you sh it's unfair and you should never want it. And that's actually not the case. And you, you think about the allocation that you just described, that's under duress and free market works differently, doesn't it? Oh, yes, it does. And if, if, you know, if you look around the world... Uh, and you and you 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 uh, you rank countries, so whether they're on the free market end of the economic continuum or the socialist and communist end of the of the economic continuum, then you rank countries according to uh, the uh, international ham amnesty. Uh, um, civil rights protections or, or Freedom House's uh, uh, protections of uh, civil rights, their rankings of countries, and then you rank countries according to whether you know uh, uh, to uh, according to per capita income, and you find that the countries that are closer to the free market system or towards capitalism, they not only have greater human rights protections, the the people are wealthier in those countries. The countries towards the communist or, or the socialistic end of the economic spectrum, uh, they're the countries that tend to be poor, and they're the countries where there, uh, there are far fewer, fewer human rights uh, protections. So uh, if I were an unborn spirit in heaven and, and, uh, and God told me, well, Walter Williams, I condemn you to a life of poverty, but I'm going to let you choose the country in which to be poor in. Mm -hmm. I would surely choose United States, and I'm very, very sure that most people, even the people who condemn uh, our, our our nation as uh, as uh, unfair, uh, they they would t uh, probably t choose to be born in the United States as well. I think you're absolutely right on that, and we see that with our immigration system, don't we? Oh yes, and there's a survey I I pointed out in a column, in a recent column. That uh, there's a survey done by uh, Gallup, and they find that roughly 15% of the world's population 
uh, that people would like to live in some other country. Mm-hmm. And it turns out the overwhelming uh, choice for those people, the, what country those people would choose to live in, is the United States, and then the, uh, then uh, the uh, uh, then Canada and the United Kingdom. But nobody wants to say, well, we want to move to Venezuela or Argentina or Russia or North Korea. Uh, they always want the people always tend to want to go to countries where that tend towards capitalism. So all of this noise that we're hearing about how capitalism equals no opportunity and that you know, we live in a country where we need to change this. And they're completely wrong. I mean, these guys aren't, econ- uh, they don't know anything about economics. It's all about emotion. But Yes, you're, you, oh, go ahead. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. And I, I wrote a book uh, uh, some years ago. It's called uh, Race and Economics. And uh, the subtitle is How Much Does Discrimination Explain? And I pointed out uh, in that book that uh, that black Americans, uh, if you added up the income that black Americans earn each year, and just thought of us as an individual nation, uh, we would be the 18th or 19th richest nation on the face of earth, uh, coming in just slightly behind uh, um, uh, Switzerland. And so uh, it, it, it turns out here, here the, the, the fact of this is a rather miraculous thing is that here's some people that are just a, a, year, uh, a century or so out of slavery, but yet uh, very well off uh, as a group. There, there are many uh, black Americans who are not very well off, but as a group, uh, the uh, black Americans would be the uh, uh, 18th, 19th richest nation in the world. You wouldn't think that when you listen to all the rhetoric out there. We're just destitute. We're, we need the help and the largesse of the government to help us because we're un- incapable of doing it by ourselves. Doesn't that make you just right. some kind of way when you hear that? I think it's, it's an insult to the sacrifices of many black people during the uh, 18th and 19th century that struggled mightily and gave their blood, sweat, and tears for the opportunities that many black people had today, and to say that uh, and to pre- and to pretend that blacks are no better off than uh, they're under slavery or or uh, they they're just uh, or blacks are un- uniformly poor. I think that's just an insult to. The, uh, uh, I mean, it's like spitting on the graves of those uh, black people in the past who made personal sacrifices to make sure that we had the opportunity that we have today. I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, I think it's also a measure of control. As long as you keep people in this emotional rut where they feel like, I, I, there's, it's all stacked against me, there's nothing I can do, why try, let me just, you know, put a hand out and hope for the best – that's not going to get anybody ahead. It just keeps them in the same position, doesn't it? That, that is that is absolutely right. And and uh, and and my in my book uh, that I wrote some a few years ago uh, about discrimination, I point out that the the major problems that uh, that that Black Americans face today have absolutely nothing to do with discrimination. I, and I think that also we should recognize. That the civil rights struggle is over and won, but that does not mean that they're not some major problems that are holding many uh, black Americans back. That is, 
the illegitimacy rate among black Americans is 75%. And that's a devastating, uh, 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 devastating statistic, but it doesn't, it, 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 it's, it's not caused by uh, racial discrimination. And you see that if you look at the statistics in 1938, the illegitimacy rate among blacks was 11%, and that among uh, whites was 3%. And today, as I said, the illegit- illegitimacy rate among blacks is 75%, and that among whites is slightly over 30%. And then if you look at the, um, the, the, the grossly fraudulent education that many black youngsters are receiving, whereby uh, the average uh, black uh, youngster who's a senior in high school, he has the educational achievement of a white who might be in the seventh or eighth grade. That's devastating, but it doesn't have anything to do with discrimination. That's uh, the, the, the fact that you find in cities like Baltimore, Chicago, Philadelphia, and St. Louis, where black people are huddled in homes, afraid to come out on the street, and it's not, and, and they're getting shot, and murdered, and it's not the Klan that they're worried about. It's other black people that are doing it. So, we, we, we as you know, many Americans, both black and white Americans, we have to uh, confront some realities that sometimes are not very, very pleasant to talk about. You know, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and on that note, let's take a break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. I think we're having a really important conversation with Professor Williams. You know, before the break, we were talking about truth, just you know, speaking truth to power. And that's one thing that always strikes me about the, the left movement. Nobody takes responsibility for anything. It's always somebody else's fault. And I don't know if you listened to the Aretha Franklin funeral, but there was a pastor from Georgia that literally got up there and said exactly what we're talking about now. We need to, unless we love ourselves... As, as a people, a group, and we take responsibility and start making better choices, how can we expect anybody else to actually do that for us? I don't know. And, and, and by the way, uh, this Pastor Williams, uh, he, he, since he's gave, given that talk, he's been roundly denounced. I know. And, but that's not... And, uh, and, okay. and he, was, he was talking about some very, very important things that uh, need to be confronted, but again, they're, they're embarrassing. I mean, they, I mean, they're embarrassing to uh, to many black people as a race, but nonetheless, they're they're issues that need to be con- confronted, such as the high crime rate, the uh, the the, uh, the the people being on welfare, the uh, uh, the the violence, and the. Uh, in our schools, and 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 what goes on today uh, uh, is entirely new among black people. I'm 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 uh, 82 years old, and when I was a kid, we would never think of uh, of cursing out a teacher or or punching out a teacher. But today, uh, like in the city of Baltimore, on the average, on I think it was 2014 statistics. On the school on on each school day, an average of four teachers were uh, assaulted. I mean, that's incredible. That's incredible uh, number for you know to an idea for someone who who went to school in the 1940s and early 50s. Oh my gosh! I mean, my mom was a teacher in the New York public school system, and when she retired, she had PTSD, and she was you know old school authoritarian. They didn't try to assault her, but. It just to hold order, just to keep order in the class was just, it took a lot out of her. 
And that, that was yeah. never the case. We, you know, you were seen and not heard. You don't talk back. I mean, that's the the society that I grew up in and the mindset. And now they want to actually put more money in the education system and double down on this and literally actually have children have no place, no choice to go. Don't, no charter schools. This is all you get. And is it that's the right. means of you know, indoctrination? I mean, you won't have any pushback if everybody's educated the same way. And they don't know what the, that there's an alternative, that the free market exists, that capitalism isn't a bad word. You know, society would change, wouldn't it? You're absolutely right. And, and matter of fact, if you, if you look, um, it's, it's kind of interesting empirical study you can do. Uh, and it doesn't take a whole lot. But if you go to some poor neighborhoods, whether they're black or white, you, you will see some, some nice cars, maybe some nice clothing, some nice food, but no nice schools. How come at least, at least some nice schools? Well, it turns out if you ask the question, well, how are schools distributed versus cars, clothing, and food? Well, cars, clothing, and food are distributed through the market system, and uh, and schools are distributed through the political system. And and when when and people will always find themselves at a dis, relatively disadvantage if things are distributed through the political system as opposed to the the market system. And if you look for the major problems in our country, uh, you, you know, you, you don't find people picketing uh, uh, clothing stores or computer stores or, or food stores. Uh, what, they, what they're dissatisfied with is the motor vehicles department, the public education system, the, uh, uh, the, the sanitation system, uh, or, or uh, and the school system. And so... It it it, uh, it all it all points out that, to the fact that the profit motive is very very important. That is, the way that a supermarket keeps their customers is by pleasing their customers. But uh, a school or or these motor vehicles department, uh, they can treat people this any way they want. They can deliver anything they want and still get paid. But but uh, and that's the disadvantage of government allocation versus market allocation of goods and services. That is, in, in market allocation of goods and services, you must please the customer in order to get his uh, dollars. But in school system, you don't have to please anybody to get dollars. You just use the state to tax and get the dollars uh, for, <laughs> for the uh, pay for the school teachers. So imagine extrapolating that to the healthcare system in a single payer where, you know, the government is going to pay the physician, pay the hospital. They don't have to compete for services. First thing I can see, and we see it now, the independent side of medicine where people are paying for their services, whether that be plastic surgery or direct primary care, it's a completely different standard of treatment. It's cheaper, more accessible, more patient-friendly, and it's the opposite in the corporate system where you get what you get. Good luck, <laughs> you know. That's right. Street yeah. and street, it's a completely different ball game. Bye, totally get it. Now, yes. I wanted to switch. And, and and I might, I just might add to your point that mm -hmm. with uh, with the the cosmetic uh, uh, surgery or the or the uh, plastic surgery, uh, that that's not covered by many healthcare plans. So it's a direct relationship between the patient and the physician. 
But with most of our medical care, it's a third-party payer, whether it's an insurance company or whether it's a government. And whenever there's a third-party payer, well, the the uh, the customer is not attentive to cost, and the the uh, provider is not that attentive to cost because he knows that a third-party payer is going to pay. And so that's one of the big problems with our medical system is the idea that there's a third-party payer. I agree. And not only that, but it's more expensive in that system. They surely they don't care about the attention to the patient doesn't really. Well, I think they care more now because their deductibles are higher. But the third party itself is gouging on both ends. They don't pay the physician. They charge the patient a crazy amount of money, and then they don't pay it out. And there's nothing mm-hmm. stopping that system from, there's no checks and balances on that system. That's the sad part. Um, yes, you're absolutely right. You know, I want to switch gears because there's a couple of other topics or, or examples that I want to make sure people understand. We've been hearing the word fascism thrown around like, I don't know, water. What exactly is fascism? Well, fascism does not differ from what we see. It's a form of totalitarianism, mm-hmm. very much like uh, aspects of socialism and communism, where uh, individual uh, people's rights to act independently and do what they want, uh, so long as they don't interfere with other people, uh, is, uh, is is denied. And and fascism, you know, that's one of the big mistakes that people made uh, between uh, Germany and Russia. That is, both were the same systems. They just called each other. Uh, different names. That is Germany and Italy. They were fascist states as well as Russia, but but they didn't call as they didn't they didn't call themselves communists. They called themselves uh, 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 fascists. So I think that that um, see, see my particular value, and I think it's Christian as well, is that I believe that people should have the right to engage in peaceable voluntary exchange with whomever they want under any conditions, under whatever agreeable conditions. And when you have government uh, come in and intervene, well, that's saying, well, no, you cannot make decisions uh, yourself. You must uh, do what we say. Mm-hmm. And if you don't like what we say, uh, you go to jail. That's, that's actually, that's, you know, from a healthcare perspective, I can speak to that because the Medicare system has that kind of control over physicians. If we underbill a patient, if we don't charge for all our services or we charge the patient uh, for a service that's not covered, we could run afoul of the government and be fined or jailed. So I can yeah. speak to that from a, from a personal perspective. It has a chilling effect on yes, yes, it does. services. Yes, it, yes, it does. And I mean, it's like, and, and then sometimes they call it Medicare fraud. That is, that is, for example, if I go to a physician and, and I need a particular procedure and, and he says, well, look, uh, Williams, uh, this procedure costs $500, but the Medicare is only going to reimburse me uh, $300, but I'll do the procedure if you give me $200. Yep, balance billing. And and so so that that is that is Medicare fraud exactly. And so and but 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 however, the the physician is is being honest. I mean he's he's saying look, it's it, the procedure costs for five hundred dollars, but the Medicare will only reimburse for three hundred. So I can't do it, Williams. But if you give me if you give me the two hundred dollars, well I'll I'll go ahead and do it because I'll be made whole. And but but <laughs> if he gets caught, he'll go to jail. That's exactly right. So you end up. Uh, involuntarily 
discounting your services. And so they're giving yeah. free labor. And that's what, you know, for me, when people say something's a right as opposed to a service, that's what they get to do to you. Yeah. And, 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 and when people use the right, the people have a right to medical care or people have a right to housing mm-hmm. when they can't afford it. Well, you know, when you say somebody has a right to something that they did not produce, that of necessity means that somebody else does not have a right to what he re- what he did produce. That is, the government uh, when they when they when they the government cannot give one American citizen one dollar without first taking it from some other American. And so, because there's no tooth fairy or Santa Claus giving them the money. So when people say, "Well, you have a right to this." Well, that's just plain nonsense. Now, I don't want to mis- uh, create any misunderstanding. I believe in charity. I believe in helping our fellow man in need. But I believe it's praiseworthy and laudable to help one's fellow man in need by reaching into one's own pockets uh, versus reaching into somebody else's pockets to help your fellow man in need. <laughs> and I'm sure for the Christians among us that when God gave Moses the commandment, thou shalt not steal, he did not mean thou shalt not steal unless you got a majority vote in the United States Congress. I couldn't have said it better. And you know, when you think about what you just said and how and extrapolate it, it's these social justice folks and the uh, Democrats, social Democrats and the communists who actually are the totalitarians because they're by duress forcing you to give up your value. Yeah, and, yeah right. You're right. And and what that means is that if you break it down, what it means, what they what they support and what so many Americans support is that the government or Congress forcibly using one American to serve the purposes of another American, which I believe the forcible use of one person to serve the purpose of somebody else, I think that that's immoral. As a matter of fact, that's a fairly good working definition definition of slavery. The forcible that. use of one person to serve the purpose of somebody else. And that is when when the government takes your earnings <laughs> to to uh, to bail out farmers or give the poor people or to bail out failing businesses, that's the government is forcibly using you to serve the purpose of somebody else. It's wrong, and it doesn't work, because essentially you'll give it up. Why, why would you want to have someone force you to do something? I'd rather do something else, retire, leave the profession. That's exactly what we're seeing. <laughs> and and, and what, that's one of the reasons why so many Americans love government, because, like, if I see an elderly person in downtown Atlanta, dead of winter, person needs some some health care and some food and some shelter and if i walk up to you dr jordan i say give me your two hundred dollars and then i go down and help the person out i'll go to jail mm-hmm. but however when congress does the same thing uh, uh you, you, you uh, nobody goes to jail so when they talk about well let's 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 use that analogy for a second, where the government is taking, robbing Peter to pay Paul, so to speak. Is this um, universal income, some sort of uh, pablum to make you think that, hey, everybody was going to get something, so we're really, it's not going to be so bad. It's a, to me, it's a bad situation. Civil income is ridiculous. <laughs> That's like being a serf, essentially. <laughs> You're going to get a little pittance for working and yeah. giving to somebody. That doesn't even... Is that really 
What is that? <laughs> well, I, I, I think I think that's immoral. And then also, if we just ask ourselves, if we look at a little bit of history, today the federal government uh, is about twenty five percent of the GDP. But from seventeen eighty seven until and from seventeen ninety two until nineteen twenty, the federal government was no more than three percent of the GDP, except during wartime. And so one has to ask the question, how did we become a great, rich, powerful nation with the federal government being so small? Mm-hmm. Well, the reason why we became a rich and powerful nation was precisely because the government is very small and hence stayed out of people's lives. That says a lot. So big government is not the answer. It's limited government. That's right. And that's, and that's what the Constitution calls for, limited government. Hmm. On the, on the last topic, I know we have a couple of minutes really left, but I want to get your take on this $15 minimum wage uh, bandwagon that people are, are touting. To me, it's, a, it's not a good thing. It's going to end up with job loss. But what's your take? Well, I think I've written a whole lot down through the years about the minimum wage. And what the minimum wage law does, it says, for uh, let's say in the case of $15, it says, look, if you're not worth $15, if you cannot produce $15 worth of value per hour, you're not deserving of a job. That is, maybe you can produce $6 worth of value an hour, but uh, you can't produce uh, $15 an hour. So that's like a law saying, <clears throat> saying that you cannot you, you you cannot move up the economic ladder you can't even get your foot on the bottom rung economic ladder unless you have uh, uh, the ability to make uh, fifteen dollars an hour mm-hmm. and then one of the effects that we see is that uh, you know take take a I think it's rather cruel t- take a a young lady who's uh, maybe has a kid and she's working as a cashier. And she's getting $21,000 a year, which is no great stakes, but it's an honest living. Then people have get a, a minimum wage law passed, $10, $15 an hour. So what the company does says, well, look, I, we can't make, make it on this. So what they start doing is getting kiosks where uh, you uh, where uh, where they have a, a – where you, let's say like a Wawa. If you want a sandwich there in many places, you go push a button, no cashier at all, and it's people just cooking back uh, – uh, cooking in the kitchen, making your sandwich. Now, what this minimum wage law does, it it destroys a job. And and I think it's very, very cruel. And the minimum wage law, as Milton Friedman said, my uh, my colleague uh, many years ago, he's gone. But he says that he cannot think of a more anti-black law than the minimum wage law. And um, I, I wrote a book in 1990 called South Africa's War Against Capitalism. And I spent some time in South Africa, and I did study labor markets. And the major supporters of minimum wage laws in South Africa were white labor unions that would never have a black as a member. And what their stated reason was that they they support the minimum wage law to in order to protect uh, uh, white workers against having to compete with low-skilled uh, low-wage black workers. So the minimum wage law not only has the unemployment effect, it subsidizes racial discrimination. Wow, that's amazing. That says a, a ton, doesn't it? 
Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's like, if, for example, if I said, well, uh, um, you cannot be um, – the, the, the minimum wage for a, a, a neurosurgeon, the minimum a, a yearly uh, salary for a minimum surge, uh, for a neurosurgeon is $800,000 a year. Hospitals must pay $800,000 a year. Well, uh, what what hospitals would do, they'll just go out and they won't get a neurosurgeon who has skills to, to that, that that are worth only $400,000 a year. They're going to get the higher skilled neurosurgeons. Mm-hmm. And so the minimum wage law always discriminates against the employment of lower skilled workers. So the very people are trying to help, they're literally pushing them out of a job. <laughs> that, is, that is absolutely right. And, and just one factor on it, uh, in, 19, in, uh, in uh, 1948, and this is in my book and I give the Department of Labor statistics, in 1948, before their massive increase in minimum wage law, black teenage unemployment was less than white teenage unemployment. Mm-hmm. It was a few points less. And black labor force participation rate, teenage labor force, labor force participation rate was greater than white labor force participation rate. And then blacks in general had a higher labor force participation rate than whites from, uh, from the time of, uh, I think, 1870 through 1960. And there's a guy who did a study on the on the uh, during the South, he traveled all over the South uh, shortly after the uh, Civil War, and he says that many people questioned whether uh, blacks will work if they were freed from slavery. And he said, "Well, the question should be whether whites would work if blacks were freed from slavery." And so, he's, he, but he's just pointing out the labor force participation rate in, among blacks is greater than that among whites. So. Um- I'm going to ask a provocative question. Was desegregation a good thing for us in terms of economics? Because you're giving that the, the year of 1960, we're getting close to the Civil Rights Act and, and desegregation, and now we've seen the, the job force kind of change. Well, I, I think that the, uh, the, uh, the, the civil rights movement that led to the fact that, that black Americans had the same civil rights that, that as everybody else, I think that was a very, very important step. Mm-hmm. But the, uh, the issue of whether there should be, where there sh- whether there should have been uh, school integration, busing, and things like that, I think that the, uh, uh, the, the word is still out on that, that. I don't know whether that did that much good. Wow. Now, I know you have to go, so what is the best way for my listeners to read what you, read your work, get your book? I know there's a movie also out um, that you had uh, about your life, which is fascinating. Yeah, yeah it's called Suffering No Fools. Well, what, what, what the, uh, the listeners should do is I, my website is WalterEWilliams.com. Let me repeat, WalterEWilliams.com. And there's a lot of material uh, on that site, my publications, and and then there's uh, book recommendations, websites, and and biography, and all kinds of things about my life for over the last 82 years. You know, I wish I had more time. I hope you'll come back because this is just scratching the surface of a really important conversation. And knowledge is power. It's not about emotion and turning your <clears throat> your your reason off. It's about being honest with yourself yeah. and making good choices and standing up for what you believe. 
Right. And, and, and thank you for inviting me, and we can do it again sometime. Thank you so much. Have a blessed day. Okay. Okay, goodbye. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out of pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Dr. Elena George, welcome back to Medicine on Call. Our conversation with Professor Williams is and was a very important one. I think it spoke to many things in in our society. It spoke to the fact that we are living in a situation that's driven by emotion, and we need to really do better, quite frankly. Because we're living in this, this constant vacuum of negativity where people are being literally told over and over again you're not living better you're you have no hope to do better only we have the answer you you can't think for yourself you can't make conscious decisions that are helpful to you you have to group think and you have to be part of a whole because that's the only way you'll survive and it's not even about thriving it's about only about survival is that really a situation that any of us want to be uh, to find ourselves in? Our conversation was very provocative because it talked about personal choice and about making conscious decisions for the right reasons, not out of fear, but out of knowledge. How on earth can we expect honestly to do better if we don't know our history, if we don't do our own due diligence, if we don't read? If we don't ask questions, someone telling me that I as a physician should be happy with the way the healthcare system is running and I should like it and get in line doesn't work for me. And if it did, I would have joined up with the biggest hospital group I could, sold my practice, and been a drone in the healthcare system. Somehow that never spoke to me, and it never will. And I'm sure that I'm not alone in that in that mindset and that thought process. It happens everywhere in our country, whether you're a teacher, construction worker, small business owner, anybody who's out there who literally has to make do, think outside the box, come up with an, an alternative to work against a system that's literally trying to suppress your creativity, your individuality, your thought, your freedom of speech. Everything about you that makes you an individual is an enemy to this system. I don't care if you're a patient, a doctor, 
a nurse, I don't care what you are. You are designed in this system to be part of a whole, to be to contribute to the machine, to provide labor, to provide money, to provide your consent, and to just shut up and go along, obey. Do you really want to live in a system like that? I have news for the single-payer crowd, for the folks that want single-payer. It's not about health care. It never has been about health care. It's about control. They want to control your choice. They want to control how much money you're, you pay for something. They want to control outcomes, which is totally not possible, because the body doesn't work that way. But as Professor eloquently said, asking for somebody, or I should say making somebody give their labor and putting a value on that labor that they give and not giving them a choice to say no is slavery. And at the very least, it's serfdom. I choose to be neither. And I would hope that anybody listening to the show and anybody who, who's friends of someone who listens to the show because they passed it to them would actually start thinking a little bit differently. It's not about what the government can give you. It's not about what some group took from you. It's about what you're going to contribute yourself. What skills do you have? What skills can you actually create, learn, gather for yourself so that you can be self-sufficient? As a physician, it's not about somebody paying me a salary. It's about me looking face-to-face across the, you know, the chair, the desk, and discussing the options, the pathophysiology, the disease process, you name it, even social issues, with my patient. Because it's about the energy that we pass between each other that helps me heal, help heal the patient. You know, it should never be about somebody telling us what we should like, what, what we're worth. You know, that, that just doesn't work because whoever has the pocketbook has the power. And for those who think single payer is going to be the option, having the government have that power is not going to end well for anybody. You can see how the situation works already. We use the post office, a perfect, perfect example, but you can use the corporate public-private partnerships that have been going on and know that we as, as citizens and individuals always end up behind the eight ball. And worse yet, end up holding, or I should say, paying the money for somebody else's privilege. Amazon, perfect example. This guy is the richest man in the world, I think, at this point, and some of his workers are living on food stamps. And they're getting money from the government to support this. That's like shocking. My mail didn't get delivered until midnight during Christmas season because they were busy delivering Amazon packages first. Yet I'm paying, as you are, for the postal service to work for me. But it doesn't because whoever has the money has the ear of the government. Now, I challenge my social Democrat friends to ask themselves, do you think that's going to be any different if you let the government have more power? Are they going to give you something? Or are, you going to, are they going to take more from you? And this is a health care. It's about health care show. So let's see. Let's just examine what they've done so far. People in Medicare who get admitted to the hospital have to be admitted no, no less than, readmitted, I'm sorry, less than, no less than 30 days prior 
after their last admission, sorry. So if you have COPD, which is a pulmonary disease, you get pneumonia, you get admitted, you get discharged, and you're readmitted 29 days after the fact. The hospital won't be paid, the doctor won't be paid, the bill becomes yours. That's single payer, folks. That's the government telling you what, what you know, proselytizing treatment, choice of care, choice of medication, choice of physician, choice of lab, choice of whether or not you have surgery. And if everything doesn't work out properly and you end up back in the hospital, through nobody's fault, but it just is. The government says you're not going to get, you're not worthy. You know, you're not, they're not going to pay for your care. If they admit you in a, with a certain designation as an observation versus an inpatient, then all the medication that they prescribe for you in that hospitalization, you as the patient are responsible to pay. Do they tell you that before you get in the hospital or discharge? No. You only find out after the fact when you get sacked with a, or hit, socked with a huge mongoose bill, a humongous bill. This is what single payer means. It's not about choice. You don't have 15 different hospitals you can go to. You're going to have one or maybe three or four when they all specialize in something. You have one for orthopedics, one for cardiology, one for pediatrics, one for cancer. And if you fall outside those cracks, good luck to you. We already see how much the pharmaceutical industry is gouging the government for medications, which they stop making conveniently when there's a disease that needs the help. And it's not the orphan diseases. It's things like asthma, things like allergy on our end, you know, things that people actually have, diabetes. They were jacking up the price for insulin because they could, because they know there's so many people with that disease process they could make out like bandits, and you have nowhere to go. And the government's not negotiating anything because there's a kickback system within the pharmaceutical industry that they get paid for uh, their formulary. And they get paid more if it's a scarcity. So what do you think they're going to do? They're going to create scarcity so they can charge more. And there's nobody overlooking this. Nobody's saying how wrong this is. Nobody's saying, this is, you already, how much money do you need to make? It's never enough. And the only thing that holds the cost of anything down is competition. Because you as a consumer can say, I'm not paying $1,000 for insulin when I know I can go down the road and get it for 15 bucks. Their $1,000 bonanza stops yesterday when patients know what the cost of something is. Honestly, it's all about choice and it's all about competition and it's all about patients becoming consumers. You can't do that when you have the mindset of, I, only, I need insurance. I don't want to shop around. I have a huge deductible, but I have to use it because I paid money for it. Meanwhile, you can go to an independent doctor and pay a fraction of what you're paying in your insurance. Wake up because you're actually feeding this system by being complacent and ignorant and fearful. They want that. They live, they thrive on fear. And it's about time, and that's why you're listening to the show, for you to take your power back. On that note, you're listening to Medicine on Call. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. You know, I'm, I'm so passionate about this because this, is, this doesn't have to happen. We don't have, we shouldn't have never been in this situation from the get-go. And, you know, what Professor Williams talked about 
about people, you know, being, I would say, selfish, that you own somebody else's labor, that it's a right. They really, really want to, ha- you know, you have to listen to the language. They're hammering certain words and they're emotional trigger, emotional trigger words that make you feed, feed the lower, the lower uh, you know, brain in all of us. If you're able, most people, unfortunately, if you're able to have something for free, you're going to want to have it. If somebody tells you that you didn't get something that you thought that you deserved because somebody took it from you and they hammer that home 24-7 and you grow up believing that, what else do you think that you need to, you know, you're going to go after the person who took it from you and by any means necessary. doesn't matter if it hurts you in the process. doesn't matter if it's not what you thought it was when you finally get it. It doesn't matter that the thing that you wanted, once you get it, you may never be able to get it again because the person who could make it or could, uh, you know, create it no longer is doing it. It's no longer creating it. What happens then when you don't have the thing that you want because it doesn't exist? Everybody loses. The only winner in this is the person who stands the thing that stands to gain. If it's not you, if it's not your family, then you have to think twice about it. Are you really standing to gain by this movement towards quote-unquote fairness and moving towards a collective mindset, a tribal mindset? I just heard or just read an article uh, I guess a headline that the former first lady is asking women of color to vote, you know, not everybody, just women of color. So you're carving out a group to make them feel special and also make them hate another group. That's what they're doing. How, can we, how many times can they use the same playbook and we fall into the same? I mean, I'm done with it. I don't even want to hear this anymore. I don't even listen to it because I know what the truth is. When you go outside and, and you're in a restaurant or you're in your community, really, how many people are there look giving you the evil eye and not serving you? And I mean, really? Does it, I mean, I'm sure it happens. Don't get me wrong. But is it everybody? I don't think so. You know, this, this is a choice now. I think we've lived on both sides of this equation. Eight years of... Everybody's a victim. White people did something to you. You're a perpetual slave. You're a perpetual, you know, you you don't have, as a woman, you don't have rights over your own reproductive organs and someone wants to take it from you. Every group has had something said that they can't ever do without somebody else giving up a right for them to have it versus now where it's about it's about what you have to offer. What skills do you have? I don't care what color you are. If you have something that I want, I'm buying it from you. I'm going to go to your establishment. I'm going to create my own because it doesn't exist, so I want to make my own. And if people who want it, they'll come and buy it from me. This is a system that's based on meritocracy. Everybody has value. And that's the thing that I think that people lose sight of. We're not the same. Therefore, we cannot be equal. We're different, and in that difference is our value. So I'm good at science or writing. Somebody else is good at art. Somebody else is good at, at uh, 
you know, abstract thinking. I don't care what it is. Someone, everybody has a skill. And ultimately, it's, the onus is on you, not me, not the government, but you as an individual to find out what it is that you love, what it is you're put on this earth to do, and do it. And if you don't succeed, and it sounds really sad, try again, right? This is what living's about. It's not about having everything fall in your lap and being right the first time and having everything awesome. It's not. It's about work. It's about sacrifice. It's about making mistakes and figuring out what they are and not doing them again. That's what it's about. And nobody can sit here and tell me that I didn't spend 20-some-odd years in school to get paid nothing and like it. I'm not doing, I'm not a doctor for money, but I do need to stay open, right? I mean, I'm providing a service and I deserve to be paid for what I do. And if I don't do it, I don't deserve to be paid. But I don't need somebody who's taking money from you as the patient, me as the physician, society in general, and putting their hands out to get more when they're making money on both ends. There's this, this is not a level playing field. That's really what everybody wants. I don't care if you're you know, a working class person, if you have no job, if you're a multimillionaire. Everybody deserves a fair shot and not have the, the game rigged against them. The system is not working the way it's designed. And as I said before the break, if you're not happy with it, here's medicine again. If you go to a doctor, they don't look at you in the face. They don't talk to you. They completely ignore your history, and they don't even examine you, put their hands on you to examine you. It's on you if you stay in that doctor's practice. You can't complain if you keep paying money and getting treated like dirt. You, you know, let's be honest. You get what you deserve. hate to sound that way, but it's true. And those patients who want better who have the courage to walk out of the office, send a letter back and tell them why they left the practice, have a, a frank conversation with their doctor about what they expect, I think this would stop. It's all about the money. Who has the power of the purse? It's the patient. Becoming a consumer, no matter what it is, of healthcare, of your media, of your everything about you, who you choose to spend your money with, if they're working against you or they don't stand up for your values, why on earth would you want to pay money to them? I wouldn't. I choose not to, to feed a system that wants to make me a victim. I'm not interested in that. The, the biggest thing right now is Nike. You know, they, they have the right to have an, any ad campaign they, they like, and I have the right not to buy their product and not apologize for it. Maybe we should stop apologizing for things that, that don't, don't help us, that don't speak to us in a positive way, and that don't make us feel good about ourselves. I don't think, I mean, personally, why would anybody want to buy that product? It's all about negativity and about, you know, it's potentially, it can be seen as anti-American if you really want to be honest about it. But this is a movement. It's about divide and conquer. It's about taking away individual and individual choice, individual pursuits. And if you're part of a global whole, then it's not good to be an American. It's not good to be an individual. It's not good to pursue a talent that you're really good at because somebody else can't do it, and therefore you should apologize. Does that make sense to anybody? 
I don't think it does. But instead of us being polite and, well, I don't want to put my head up because someone else is going to yell at me or I'm going to be called a name. If you know, as I said last week, if you're not a racist, why on earth are you allowing somebody to define you? Nobody defines me. They don't know me. They don't know you. And as long as you have a sense of self, and I think personally, a, a relationship with God, because that takes everybody on this earth out of the equation. I don't care what you think. I serve somebody, something higher than me. And therefore, you, I don't care what you think. I'm doing the right thing for the right reasons to help people, not to hurt them. And it's not a selfish motive. And what? Then you actually rise above all this negativity and this pressure to conform. And it's base, honestly. Do we really need to go there anymore? Please. This is, this is something that's really, really important to me, as you can hear. We all need to take, do better, take our power back. You're listening to this show for a reason, because you want solutions. And in the next few weeks, we're going to start really moving more towards that. I will be starting a new podcast, and you're going to be able to find me on iTunes starting the first week of October. Um, I encourage you to go to my website, DrElenaGeorge.com. Right now, it's still a work in progress, so I don't have a name, but I will in very shortly. And I want to thank you for listening and for being proactive and being uh, something positive in this world. On that note, thank you for listening to Medicine on Call, and I will see you next week. Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Promoting peace, liberty, and prosperity around the clock. LibertyTalk.fm.